Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're excited to begin our new sermon series this morning through the book of Hebrews. We've been looking forward to this for a few months now, and it looks like it will take us, based on the breakdown that we've done, approximately somewhere around 30 sermons to work through the entirety of this book. Now, we're not going to do all those back to back. We will have a couple guest speakers in between there, and then also we will do about half of the series this spring. We'll take a break in the summer for a few brief series, and then we'll jump back into the book of Hebrews in the fall, finishing just a little before Christmas. But before we jump into this book this morning, we do need to set a little bit of context about this book. Here are a few things that we know for sure. The author. We are sure we don't know who it is. <laughs> there are arguments for Paul, for Barnabas, for Luke, for Apollos, and even for Priscilla. Now, my personal belief is that the arguments for Barnabas and Apollos seem to be the strongest arguments, with Apollos winning out just slightly edging forward. But either way, it does not matter who wrote the book. It does not change our understanding of the book. We know for sure that we don't know who the recipients of this letter were. Based on the content in the book, though, we can say that it appears that the writer and the recipients knew each other well and that they knew the Old Testament well and that the audience was most likely Jewish. We're not sure where the letter originated or where it was sent to. Was it written in Rome and sent back to Jerusalem? Was it written in Jerusalem and sent to Rome? We don't know. And there's even, to de even debate as to whether or not this is even a letter. There are aspects of this book that reflect the nature of a letter, but in the sa at the same time, there are key elements to letters that do not show up anywhere in this book. Some have argued that there is a majority of this book that is actually written in a very sermonic way, as if somebody had found somebody's sermon manuscript. Then there are some who just try to find the happy medium like me and say, well, it's a sermonic letter. Meaning someone either took their sermon manuscript and sent it to some believers as a letter or it was written as a letter but written in a way as to where it was supposed to be preached when it was read rather than just being read. Because of those two things throughout this series, we will refer to the writer as either the writer or the preacher. We'll use those interchangeably. Don't think we're talking about two different people. But at the same time, we will also say the letter or the sermon. Those will be interchanged as well just because they could be either. This book could be either of those. But what is extremely clear from the clues that we get throughout this book is the situation the audience finds themselves in. They're facing heavy persecution. Some have even, some of them have even died. They are being ridiculed for their faith in Jesus and are feeling the pressure to turn away from him and back to the Old Testament ways of Judaism. This small church has become spiritually fatigued. These believers are tired, fearful, and tempted toward following the voices pressuring them in other directions. And so as this church gathers to hear the preacher preach or to hear the letter read, they come in wondering, does God have a word for us weary saints? And as the preacher begins his introduction, he affirms, oh yes, 
God has a word for you. Because God is a God who speaks. He is not silent. We read twice in the passage the reality that God speaks. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God is not silent. He's not withdrawn. He's not standoffish. He doesn't just sit in the corner wondering if you're going to come talk to him. He's communicative. He's not indifferent to his people. Church, we should adore the fact, the reality that God speaks. He wants to be known. He wants to be enjoyed and praised for eternity for who he is. And so he speaks to his people in order to make himself known to them. How personal of God is that? You know somebody. You get to know somebody when they speak to you. And the fact that God speaks says so much about who he is. We're not left to, on our own to ponder who, who is God or what is he like. No, instead we're left to wonder at the self-revelation that God has given us through his speaking. In fact, our gathering even right now only exists because God has spoken. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As we gather each week, we are responding to the voice of God, God that called us to worship him. That's why we start our service with a call to worship, reading directly from God's word. Because it is an amazing reality that God has spoken. And what the preacher believes his audience needs to hear, what they need to see, what we need to hear, what we need to see, is the beauty that God discloses about himself in his speech. Now this is not a free-for-all, where because God speaks, we can now just claim, hey, God has told me. Or I am waiting for God to tell me something. These verses are explicitly clear that God has spoken to us. To us in a specific way. But before we can get there, we need to take a moment and delight in the diversity of how God previously spoke long ago. And these will actually be the two aspects that we're going to gaze our attention on this morning. First, the diversity of God's previous speaking. And second, the finality of God's present speaking. The diversity of God's previous speaking. The reality that God speaks is not something new to who he is. It's who he's always been to his people. The writer of Hebrews to his Jewish audience wants to remind them of the diverse nature of God's self-disclosure to their ancestors. Look back at verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Think of all the varied ways God speaks in the Old Testament. The time the writer is referring to as long ago. With Moses, God spoke with a thunderous voice and lightning on Mount Sinai. 
With Elijah, he whispered in a small voice at Mount Horeb. With Samuel, he spoke, and Samuel mistook it as just a regular human's voice. With Ezekiel, God spoke through visions. With Daniel, God spoke through dreams. Then the prophets were told to communicate their messages from God in various ways, in many ways. Hosea was told, marry an unfaithful wife. Isaiah was told, run through town preaching in nothing but a loincloth. Praise God, that's not what he's called me to. (laughs) Haggai was told to preach sermons. Amos simply just passed along the revelations from God to his people. Malachi was supposed to use questions and answers to communicate. Habakkuk was told to write it all down. And we barely even scratched the surface to mention God speaking through a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a donkey, a bodiless hand writing on a wall, and a dead prophet raised by a witch. Think of how diverse the nature of God's previous speech even now communicates to us the wonder of his character. Think of all the ways it shows us the way God works. Through all those ways I mentioned and even more, we see how much God does in order to make himself known to his people. He knows no bounds. He knows no links. He just gives. There's nothing holding him back. It puts on display his creativity. It shows that he gives just the right word in the right way at the right time to his people. And we can't forget that this was at many times. Some prophets overlapped their ministries like Isaiah and Micah, while others were separated by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles. But despite the various ways and the various times at which God spoke, in the messages, no contradictions were ever found, only continuity. What does this say about our God? Church, marvel at the diversity of God's previous way of speaking. The Old Testament is beautiful and worthy of your time, effort, and study. Even in our time spent through Hebrews, you will hopefully notice the massive appreciation and love the writer and the readers have for the Old Testament. Throughout this entire book, there are at least 38 to 39 direct references from the Old Testament. And then on top of that, approximately 55 just allusions to the Old Testament. In many ways. Many ways also communicates that God's speech came in different portions or pieces through his prophets to his people. Meaning some gave the message of judgment. Some gave the message of mercy. Some gave the message of a promised redeemer, a promised savior. Some gave the message of God's character. Some gave the message of instruction. And some gave a mixture of all of it. Each time progressively revealing more to us about who God is, about his will and his ways. All building to the moment when God would speak in fullness. And that moment came in the arrival of a son, according to verse 2. 
And the remainder of our time, we'll look at the finality of God's present speaking. The finality of God's present speaking. Verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Notice the contrasts in the verses, in verses 1 and 2. Long ago, but in these last days. Last days meaning the first coming of Jesus until the end of time. That's the last days. God spoke to our fathers, but now he has spoken to us. Feel the personal drive that that has. That us is referring to all those who have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they did not have a firsthand account with Jesus themselves. That is you and me included. Previously, at many times and in many ways, but now by his son, one way. Long ago, God spoke by the prophets, plural, prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken by or in his son, singular. All these contrasts highlight and draw our attention to the finality of God's speech. There is no fuller, more final expression of God that we can find other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is God's final word to his people. This finality of God speaking in Jesus displays his superiority over the prophets. Because yes, he is a prophet, but he is so much more than a prophet. He is not merely a prophet. He is the son of God. He is the fullness of what God spoke to the prophets in part. They were partial and fragmentary. If each prophet's message was like a single puzzle piece, then Jesus is the picture on the box. This does not imply, though, that the prophets were somehow wrong or now their messages are meaningless to us today now that Jesus is here. Notice in these verses the origin of the speech. Whether by prophets or the Son, where does the speaking come from? God. There's consistency to the message and the purpose of the previous pieces because it was God speaking. He knew what he was saying. He know, knew how much he was giving. He knew what, was, what messages were to come. You don't fully notice the intricacies of the puzzle image until you focused and studied each individual piece. Then you appreciate the picture in its fullness. The previous speech, speeches by the prophets built up to the fulfillment coming in Jesus, Jesus because they all pointed to him. Jesus himself argues this in John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And Peter, writing in 1 Peter 1, 10 and, verses 10 and 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you 
and the things that you have been announced through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, which we'll get to next week. The writer of Hebrews is saying to those listening, I'm telling you what the prophets would be telling you right now if they were standing in front of you. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. See Jesus. And is this not what our Heavenly Father himself communicates at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verse 35? A a cloud comes over them and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But why would we want to listen to Jesus? Why should you want to take time to prioritize listening to Jesus over all the other voices you are flooded with each and every day? We're all flooded with voices constantly speaking to us and around us. Friends, bosses, coworkers, neighbors, politicians, mom, 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 dad, 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 dad. And that's not even to mention your own thoughts that flood your mind. Why would you want to take the time to listen to Jesus in the midst of all of that? In the midst of all the voices flooding the souls of the Hebrews, as they were wondering if God's got a word for them, the preacher's response is to show them the beauty of Jesus and remind them them they've already been given a word, and it is glorious, and it is true, and it is sure, and it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. And it is beautiful. He says, this is Jesus who is the heir of all things. There in verse 2, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. As son, he receives an inheritance. And this is no mortal inheritance. Jesus is not waiting for the father to die so he can reap the benefits. He's God. He does not die. But the Father gives to the Son an inheritance that takes place when he is exalted on high. Listen to Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2, verse 8, which this psalm is a psalm that is talking about the Messiah, the coming Savior. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, God speaking to the Savior says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." And then Jesus picks up this idea in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 and 19. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He inherits the nations and he instructs his people to go and make disciples of the nations of which he has already inherited. You want vision casting for evangelism and missions? There it is. You go tell people about Jesus because they are already his inheritance even when they respond to the gospel call. 
in our efforts to make known the good news of Jesus, whether it be evangelistic efforts on the square or missions efforts in another country, we are calling and gathering the inheritance of Jesus. We are bringing to Jesus what is rightfully his. But the encouragement doesn't stop there. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Glorious truth. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we might also be glorified with him. As followers of Jesus who walk daily in repentance and faith, we are co-heirs with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21 and 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. Ephesians 1, in him, meaning in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Praise God for his glorious being, because when he inherits, so so does his people. Your joy and your contentment cannot be found in anything this world has to offer, no no matter how precious it might seem to you. Children and grandchildren, even they cannot satisfy your soul. Because in Christ you have the hope of an eternity where you will have all that you need as you share in the inheritance that Christ has secured by his person and his work. Praise God that he is the heir of all things, but that is not it. The writer pushes even further. He's the agent of creation by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Paul stresses the same point in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, I don't remember seeing Jesus' name in Genesis 1. What do you mean Jesus created everything? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 helps us to understand that the word spoken in Genesis 1 is identified with the word who becomes flesh in the gospel. Romans 11 verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If the Christ who fashioned the entire universe 
into being from absolutely nothing, how much more can you trust him with the circumstances in which you find yourself? But not only is he the agent of creation, if you jump down to the second half of verse 3 of Hebrews, you'll notice that he's also the sustainer of creation. He doesn't just create and walk away. He holds it. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By the power of Jesus' word, the planets remain in orbit. By the power of his words, your molecules are held together. By the power of his word, the sun's rays and radiation are held to a limit that prevents us all from being burned up and consumed and disintegrating. Every breath you take is by the power of his word. The breath you just took was because Jesus said so. Amen. We only exist in this moment because Jesus hasn't stopped saying so. And we've witnessed the power of his word as we read throughout the Gospels. When, he, when his friend died and he wanted him to walk out of the grave, what did he say? Lazarus, get up. That's all he had to say. And this dead guy comes walking out of the grave fully alive as if nothing happened. When the storm got so bad on the seas that the disciples were terrified that they were about to die, all Jesus spoke was, peace, be still. And the storm ceased instantly. There's power in the word of God and Jesus. We all experience moments and even seasons where we feel like everything is out of control and we don't know what's coming next. And it's during those experiences that we have to rely on the assurance that Jesus sustains it all by the power of his word. Nothing is outside the power of his word. If by the power of his word, you take each breath, and if by the power of his word, not only are you taking each breath, but by the power of his word, there is the perfect balance in the air that allows you to breathe in oxygen. If by the power of his word those things are happening, why should there be any hesitation that he can handle the situation you are in this morning? Jesus sustains what he creates. He doesn't make the watch and walk away. He makes the watch and then he sits there and makes it work. But if that wasn't enough to convince you to listen to Jesus, the preacher gives you more. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. Why should you listen to Jesus? Not just because he's God's messenger, not just because he's the way God uses to speak. It's because he is God speaking. Jesus is God shining forth. The fact that he radiates the glory of God is key because he doesn't reflect the glory of God. One theologian helpfully explains it's like the sun and the moon. The moon only reflects the light. The sun actually radiates the light because that's where the light comes from. 
Jesus doesn't reflect God's glory, but he radiates it because he possesses it in and of himself. It is the overflow of his being that you see the glory of God. This is why the Nicene Creed reads, light from light, true God from true God. And the idea of an imprint is the same as a stamp given to authenticate identity. And notice what he is the exact, the perfect imprint of God's nature, his essence, his being, his substance. We get the emphasis in this verse of the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. God speaks by Jesus, not just to give us general information, but he wants us to have him. In Jesus, God is saying, this is me. You have all of me if you see Jesus. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, who's at the Father's side? According to our text, it's Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 and verse 19. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In their case, meaning the ungodly, the unbelievers, the wicked. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? John 14, verses 8 to 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples about his incoming death. And what does Philip want as a comforting word from Jesus? Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And what's Jesus' response? Philip, what have we been doing? He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, Philip? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Which leads him in John 10, verse 30 to say, I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. Listen to God speak by Jesus, not just in what Jesus says, but, what it, but also in what Jesus does. When you see the gentleness of Jesus, you know the gentleness of God. When you see the patience of Jesus, you know the patience of God. When you see the compassion of Jesus, you know the compassion of God. When you see the righteous anger of Jesus, you know the righteous anger of God. When you see the birth of Jesus, you know the faithfulness of God. When you see the life of Jesus, you know the righteousness of God. When you see the death of Jesus, you know the wrath of God. And when you see the resurrection of Jesus, you know the justice of God. Look to Jesus to know God. And this is so comforting because in it is the reality that God has not hidden himself from you. It's not a divine game of hide and seek. He's like my, my, my five, four-year-old playing hide and seek. He says, here I am. It's not the point of the game, Ezekiel. <laughs> That's God. He says, here's Jesus. Here I am. He 
He made himself fully known in Jesus so that you could know him, so that you could love him and treasure him and worship him and enjoy him forever. If you know Jesus, then you know God. But if even that's not enough, the writer of Hebrews says, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the purifier of sins. This will be a repeated theme throughout the book of Hebrews, specifically chapters 9 and 10. But long ago, throughout the Old Testament, we see the many ways of sacrifices that were required Many times to purify God's people for their sins. But here we see the once for all time sacrifice that purifies sins for eternity for all those who believe. Colossians 2 verses 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your debt, my debt of sin, stood against us demanding God's perfect and holy justice to be rendered to us, to be rendered against us. We had every reason to feel the weight of the wrath of God poured out on us. But when God spoke, when God spoke, revealing himself by Jesus to us, there was an irresistible pull that moved us to stop clinging to our sin and to cling to the cross of Christ and letting go of our sin. God took it and he slams it against the cross and drives a nail through it just as nails were driven through Jesus Christ himself. And he said, your debt has been paid. Your trespasses have been forgiven. There's your sin on the cross. What grace and mercy come from God speaking. And the fact that we're told after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high is such a glorious truth because it means he sat down. It means it confirms that the sacrifice was accepted by God. It affirms that his atoning work was completed. That there was no longer any need for another sacrifice. That our, per, our problem had been given a permanent solution in Jesus. He sits down and calls us to recognize that he is not only our sin-bearing substitute, but he is now our ruling and reigning king. And the writer of Hebrews says, Behold, this is Jesus. Listen to him. That is your word from God. Whether you're in the best moments of your life or you're at the weakest moments of your life, listen to him. This is your word from God. You don't need to sit around waiting, wondering. I just need God to tell me one more thing. I just need him to, to, to tell me what's next. The writer of Hebrews is saying, he's already said it. 
Are you looking? Are you listening? The letter to the Hebrews may very well have been a sermon. And I believe we can learn from this. When the people would have been wondering, does God have a word for us? The preacher says, yes. And he just goes about magnifying Jesus to the greatest extent he can. One commentator has put it beautifully. Possibly, quote, possibly our vision of Christ is limited. We are in danger of confining him to our restricted experience or limited knowledge. We need a vision of Christ who transcends our noblest thoughts about him and our best experience of him. The opening sentences of this letter are designed to bring the first century readers and us to our knees Only then can we hope to stand firmly on our feet. What the preacher or writer of Hebrews does should be the goal of every sermon ever preached. The magnification of Jesus and the implications of his person and his work in our lives should be the goal of every single sermon you sit under and hear preached. Every sermon should have the underlying theme of look to him, see him, listen to him. Is this what you come in each week anticipating and expecting? Do you come in each week longing to see Jesus exalted? Is the magnification of Jesus what fuels you each week after you leave here? Or are you looking for a different word? An entertaining word? A motivational word? A quick fix word? Or do you come in and sit down with your brothers and sisters And together speak, show us Christ. From this text, show us Jesus, because we want to listen to him. When God speaks, a response is required. And if you've never heard God speak by Jesus in this way before, your response should be one of turning from your sin and clinging to him. And if that is you this morning, anybody you see get up in just a moment and take the Lord's Supper, you should ask them about Jesus and ask them what it's like to live for Jesus and what following Jesus means and requires of you. And they will, without hesitation, be thrilled to talk to you about that. But if you are one who has repented of your sins and is following Jesus in faith daily, then your response to hearing God speak each week by Jesus is your fellowship and participation in the Lord's Supper with the people of God. Because each and every week as you approach the table and you take the elements, you are confessing, God, I'm listening. I'm listening. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and we praise you as a God who speaks, who is not silent. 
Forgive us of the times where we have demanded you speak to us. We're questioned if you've spoken enough to us. By your spirit, would you show us Jesus? Would you magnify him in our souls so that it would motivate us to live for you and not for ourselves? And we thank you for the cup and the bread representing the sacrifice of Jesus, but also recalling to our minds the promise that he's coming again. And may that fuel our souls with nourishment to press on in this broken world, seeking to magnify Jesus in the way that we live our lives. Though he radiates your glory, may we reflect his image in the way we live. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.